as the teachings of the Buddha have traveled from India, where he lived, to other countries in Asia and to the West. The teachings have met the prevailing cultural norms, religions, and social structure. So when the teachings went to Tibet, they met the Bon religion of an agrarian society. And now we have uh, Tibetan lamas uh, presenting the teachings of the Buddha as developed in that society over uh, hundreds of years. And so too, when the teachings went to China and met Confucianism, we end up with Chan Buddhism. And when it went to Japan and throughout Southeast Asia into Sri Lanka, each culture developed a, an integration or a hybrid way of presenting uh, the teachings. Now we in the West, the Buddha's teachings are coming to the West and we are receiving strands of the teaching from all of these other cultures. And so we have Tibetan Lamas, Japanese Zen Masters, Thai Ajans, Burmese Sayadas, and they look, their rituals, their language, their teachings are all very different. But if you scratch beneath the surface and you look a little deeper into what it is they're actually teaching, all of these different strands and the different sects and the different lineages of the teachings of the Buddha all have a common foundation in the Four Noble Truths. So when we in the West come to look for the essence of the Buddha's teaching, we want to look beneath the surface of the appearance, the rituals, the cultural adaptations to what is the heart? What is the essence of the Buddha's teachings? And rather than acquiring and accumulating the cultural manifestation from other cultures, from other traditions, other times, look to see how the teachings of the Buddha can be beneficial to us in our life here in the 21st century in the West. Upon the Buddha's awakening to the truth, he articulated his realization in the Four Noble Truths. And to really understand the range of what the Buddha was pointing to in the Four Noble Truths, it's helpful to remember the source of his motivation in seeking them. And you remember as a bodhisattva when he left his father's palace and he wandered 
outside into the village, he saw what are called the four heavenly messengers. He saw with the eye of wisdom the fact of aging, the fact of sickness, the fact of death. And he really understood that this is suffering. This is oppressive conditions that we and he, all human beings, live with. And that was the motivation for his search. It helps to frame the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha was interested and he acknowledged after his awakening and throughout his many years of teaching that he taught suffering in the end of suffering. And when asked many metaphysical and speculative and philosophical questions about the nature of the universe and eternity and time and, and many other great topics for you know, late night discussion, he said, you know, it really doesn't matter because you could look your whole life for the answers to these questions and even if you could find them it wouldn't relieve you from suffering. And so he just turned away from answering such speculative and philosophical questions relying instead on the fact the knowledge that everyone suffers and there's a path to the end of suffering and that's what he taught. You know, the Buddha's articulation of the Four Noble Truths is very, uh, very simple. There's the truth of dukkha. There's the second noble truth, which is the cause of dukkha. The third noble truth, which is the end of dukkha. And the fourth noble truth, which is the path to the end of dukkha. Got it? (laughs) Only if we understand dukkha can we even begin to approach understanding and the depth of understanding and realization that the Buddha taught. So tonight I want to speak about the Four Noble Truths in a way that will support our interest in practice, it'll support our practice, it'll confirm our practice, inspire our practice, hopefully. So If the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, what's dukkha? Well, you know, when I first started Dharma practice 35 years ago or so, no fault of the first generation of Western teachers, but it was presented as life is suffering. I was 25. I was full of myself. And (laughs) I was pretty energetic and life, my life wasn't suffering. And even though I quite accidentally went to my first retreat with no interest in Buddhism or meditation or anything else, it was a pure accident. I thought I was going on a, well, a holiday. <laughs> I sat up back. My body was excruciating. My mind was all over the place, but I wasn't suffering. Suffering was too strong a word. I couldn't. I couldn't get past the idea that if I was suffering, 
I was a failure. And I couldn't afford, I couldn't stand being a failure at 25. So what does dukkha mean, really? Well, initially it means pain. There's the truth of pain. There's pain in life. There's the obvious physical pain of headache, backache, stomachache, stubbed toe, slammed finger in the door, uh, and the inevitable pain of, well, when we get sick. There's pain in growing old. There's pain in being young. There's physical discomfort in being hungry. There's physical discomfort in eating too much. And we all know this kind of pain exquisitely. And there isn't anyone in the room that hasn't experienced a lot of it. It comes with the human condition. There's also the obvious mental or emotional pain. The pain of loneliness. The pain of fear. The discomfort of stress. The, you know, self-judgment. Guilt. Shame. Humiliation. Being discriminated against. The list is well, nearly endless. And I'm sure today you've seen plenty of that. It is obvious that there is mental, emotional pain in our lives. This kind of pain is so obvious It's called dukkha dukkha. But I think there's another reason for calling it dukkha dukkha. The pain itself, physical or mental, is dukkha. And when we experience physical or mental pain, we add to it by disliking it, judging ourselves for it, blaming others for it, And this dislike and blame and judgment is a kicker of dukkha. So it's dukkha and more dukkha. So dukkha dukkha really means dukkha and more dukkha. As I said, when I heard the word suffering, if I copped to that, I felt like a failure. It took me a long time to, to really open to the truth of dukkha and to get what the Buddha was pointing to. It's not your fault. It's not your limitation. It's not personal. Because you have emotional pain, it's not personal. Everyone has this emotional pain. Because you have you know, the pain of disease and you have disease and you grow old and you have the pain of that and you have... It's not personal. Every being has this condition. But because we personalize our particular pain, our particular emotional challenges, we personalize it and we miss the significance of what the Buddha was actually saying. It is universal. It's not like that person over there doesn't have it. 
okay, pain, mental and physical pain that we don't like, pain, pain, okay. There's another experience of dukkha that's a little more subtle, a little more challenging to grok, but let me spin it out. It has to do with the fact that everything changes. Everything changes. That means that the conditions that we have accumulated and collected and acquired in our life to provide a sense of security, safety, reliability, predictability in our life, that which is the foundation of our security and happiness is all subject to change. And we know just how quickly any one of us can get, you know, a diagnosis at our next annual exam with the doctor that undermines our idea of the future. Or while you're here secluded from the national and international news, let me just say nothing important has really happened, but it could. <laughs> and your life would be in a topsy-turvy turmoil. Or just as the hundred to thousand people in northern Japan a couple of months ago, in the middle of the afternoon, life was going along fine until the tsunami arrived. We all have a tsunami headed towards us. It might be in a environmental tsunami, it might be a financial tsunami, it might be a, a physical tsunami, it might be a relationship tsunami, but you can be sure you're going to have to deal with one or two or more. Things are going to change unpredictably. And because of this fact, we are forever insecure. We do all we can to establish the basis of security in our life. Relationships, understandings, laws, all kinds of things. IRAs and MBAs and all kinds of things. And yet, just on the periphery of our vision is this understanding that it's all subject to immediate and dramatic unpredictable change. So we say that dukkha is hidden in pleasant conditions. Right now, all of us here are doing pretty good. You know, we're, we're healthy enough to be here. We have enough discretionary time to be here. We have enough discretionary finances to be here. We have the interest to be here and do this. In the whole scheme of humanity, we're living at the top of the heap. We got it really good. And as bad as it is in your life, it's as good as it gets. And we still haven't quite found that security that we can rely on. It's not your fault. It's not possible. The Buddha said all beings 
subject to conditional reality, live with this kind of insecurity. Again, we miss the significance, the profundity of what the Buddha was saying when we personalize our insecurity and we just think, oh, I haven't quite got it together, I haven't got enough in my IRA and I haven't got really my, my relationships a little bit, <laughs> I've got to get it better, a little bit better together and if I you know, just take a few more vitamins, run a few more miles and do a little more yoga, then I'll live happily ever after. No, you won't. Because it all changes, and it can change any time. If we personalize this insecurity that we feel, we're holding out a false hope for something better. And we miss the depth of what the Buddha is pointing to. Ouch. Okay, so we have pain, pain. We have the pain of change or the unsatisfactoriness of things changing. And this is more the level of existential dukkha, existential pain. There are two kinds, two views of existential pain. There's the macro view and the micro view. Now the macro view goes like this. We're born. Our parents and other caregivers doing the best they can take care of us. They feed us, they bathe us, they clothe us, they educate us, they love us, they coo us, they poop us, they pee us. They do everything for us for the first few years because if we're not happy, they're not going to be either. (laughs) And then as soon as it is... Uh, feasible, they start handing you off to other caregivers, grandparents, siblings, teachers, and other officials that will help carry the load. And eventually, after a dozen years or so, each one of us has gotten the message. You're on your own. Now, we finally have arrived, and we realize, oh, now I have to take care of myself. I have to take care of this body. I have to take care of this mind. And so we have to feed ourselves and bathe ourselves and groom ourselves every day. We've got to eat several times a day, go to the bathroom several times a day, groom every part of our body, often more than once a day, uh, provide ourselves with clothing, education, companionship. It just, well... Burdensome. It's a full-time job, even before you get an education. And, and again, get a real job. And that's just taking care of the body. We have this mind. And you know, we have to keep this mind entertained. We have to keep this mind distracted. We've got to keep this mind happy. We've got to keep it you know, kind of on the treadmill of kind of exciting, interesting, enjoyable things to do. Because if we don't, it's just like being on a retreat your whole life. And that's dukkha. (laughs) You you see a lot of dukkha on retreat, right? And so we have to take care of this body, we have to take care of this mind, and we can't get anybody else to do it for us. Well, occasionally we can get a companion, a partner, and they'll help share the load, but 
you get their responsibility too. Okay. Oh, we have to do this every day. For, you know, one, two, three, four, five, some of us six, seven, maybe even eight decades. At the end of which, what happened? We wrap it up in the best set of suit of clothes, put it in a shiny new box, and stick it in a hole in the ground or in the fire. The end. Some would look at that whole long journey and say, bad investment. Now, if all we're doing, let's face it, if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind as comfortably as we can to the grave, we're wasting our time. There's something much more valuable and beneficial to do with our life. And that is to try to understand what it is we're doing here. And this is what we're doing. This is what we're looking at. Trying to really understand what it is we're doing with this precious human life. That's the macro view. The micro view of existential dukkha is we have these six sense doors. We have these eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind, in the Buddhist understanding, a sense door. And they are constantly being stimulated. They are constantly being activated by sense objects, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, ideas. And it's 24-7, your whole life. You can close your eyes, but visions still appear in your mind. You can't close your body from feeling, you can't get away from your body feeling sensations. You can't shut your ears so that you don't hear sounds. You, and, and we know you can't stop the mind from thinking. It is constant barrage of, well, often unwanted stimulation. Good luck. That's oppressive. There's no relief. What do you, where can you go to get away from this constant stimulation? We have to bear it. We have to deal with it. Is it any wonder that so many of us just drink ourselves to oblivion, drug ourselves into annihilation, just do whatever we can to distract ourselves from, well, the oppressive nature of all these sense contacts? Some would say, yeah, but, you know, when I just sit and pay attention to it in meditation, that makes it worse. No, it doesn't. Now, maybe there's a little knee pain that comes from sitting so many hours as we do here on a retreat. That's true. Maybe there's a little knee pain, a little backache. But let's face it, what we do with practice is we pay careful enough attention and we discover the dukkha that's already here. 
in our minds, in the body. It's not, we're not making it happen by sitting and paying attention. We are uncovering, discovering, beginning to understand, really, the truth of dukkha. Some would also say, this is being unkind to ourself. But actually, practicing in such a way as to uncover, discover, and begin to understand dukkha is the most compassionate thing you can do for yourself. Because it is suffering. And until we discover our suffering, the source of suffering, the kinds of suffering that we are living with, we can't do anything about it. And so it is pure compassion to sit here and to watch the mind and body unfold moment to moment. Because you will discover dukkha, I'm sure. Right? And then you can do something about it. If you don't know your suffering, if you don't know that this is the conditions you're living with, you'll go on in happy oblivion, in denial and distraction, pretending otherwise, creating more and more causes and conditions for additional dukkha. If we don't look, we won't see, and if we don't see, we won't do anything about it. Kamala always said, oh, you really got that dukkha wrap down good. But that's not the main message of what the Buddha had to say. There's an understanding why this dukkha appears in our life. If I ask you, do you any dukkha in your life? Pretty obvious, isn't it? Why? Why is it there? Did you ever ask yourself why you suffer? We do. The Buddha did. What he discovered as the source or the cause of all this dukkha is craving. Craving in the form of attachment to pleasant experience and aversion to unpleasant experience. Okay. So the Buddha said, this dukkha is caused by craving. Of course, we're not craving dukkha. But let me run this by you. I had the assumption for a long time in my life, if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. Doesn't that make, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that sound right? You know, if I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. The Buddha said, no, that's not true. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you, of course we know, if you want something and you can't get it, you can't acquire it for whatever reason, that's suffering. But he said, even if you do get it, 
that's also dukkha. As one of my law professors would say, spin that one out for me. Please explain that. Well, think about it. So what is it you want to make you happy? So you get something that's living, like a partner, a plant, a pet. They too are subject to old age, sickness and death, and they're gonna be you know, they're gonna be doing their thing regardless of what you want them to be doing. So that's unreliable. So if you get something that is valuable, you want something really valuable to, to provide you a source of happiness. Well, first you have to pay taxes on it, then you have to insure it, it's liable to be stolen, and the government's gonna take their part. If what you want is digital, it's gonna be outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's metal, it's going to rust or corrode. If it's plastic, it's contributing to environmental degradation. So what is it that you think you're going to get that is going to provide this lasting happiness that, you, that we all want? There is a moment of relief, there's a moment of um, satisfaction in the acquisition and acquiring and becoming and getting and having something that we want. But it's so momentary. It is so brief a moment of feeling satisfied before oh, we see something else we need or want and we're in the pursuit of that. It's clear that whatever we acquire, whatever we obtain, whatever we become, in order to provide a basis of satisfaction, it doesn't last. The Buddha said there are three areas of craving. And the first is craving pleasant experience. And this we're very familiar with. We want pleasant sights instead of unpleasant sights. We want pleasant physical sensations in the body rather than unpleasant. We want pleasant sounds instead of harsh, rasping sounds. We want pleasant thoughts instead of really unpleasant thoughts. And so we seek and we spend our life trying to acquire, pursuing and trying to acquire these pleasant experiences and trying to avoid as best we can the unpleasant ones. Okay. He said we also crave what he called continued existence. Well, let's not get too esoteric. What's that mean? Well, did you have planning mind today? Were you looking ahead to the future, planning a better future than now? Right? You know, futuring, you know, imagining paradise elsewhere, as Galway Canal says. Well, we do this, we're here now, thinking about how it's gonna be so much better next week when we get out of retreat. <laughs> and we're gonna be doing all these interesting, exciting, wonderful, self-fulfilling and rewarding, pleasant things. Forgetting that being here now is what we planned last week. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and here we are living out our wish and our plans, not yet satisfied looking for paradise elsewhere. Well, this is samsara. This is, this, is, this is it. This is samsara. 
looking for happiness in all the wrong places, especially the future. Huh. Okay. That's, that's craving continued existence. The Buddha said we also crave the end of existence. You know, like stop the world, I want to get off. What's that mean? Well, did you have a difficult sitting today? You know, pain in the body, restlessness in the mind, doubt, wonder what the heck you're doing here, and just like, oh God, I wish it would just, I wish this would all just stop. Don't you wish it would just all end? We're not going to do anything about it, of course. We might shift our posture, but we can see that we still crave it, we still want it. But some of us, all of us here, have have seen kind of maybe the futility of chasing after sensual delights and pleasures, and we found Dharma practice. Thank goodness, what a relief. At least we have an alternative object of desire. <laughs> so we come on retreat, hoping for a good retreat, and a good retreat, you know, starts with a good sitting. Did you want a good sitting today? Did you have a good sitting today? A part of a good sitting today? As one of our students said, nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> Why? Because, you know, you have a good sitting and you, you, you kind of float out of the hall at the time that when the bell rings and you just think, wow, this way is going to be the rest of the retreat. Yeah. Cool. And you come back for the next, you know, you kind of float through the walking period. You come back for the next sitting and sit down not happening. And you look for it for a day or two, or, you know, and, and judge yourself and wonder what happened to your practice. And Craving sets itself up everywhere. Even these minor spiritual attainments of a pain-free sitting, not satisfying. Recent studies have shown that what we think, what we think will make us happy, doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. And what we think will make us miserable, doesn't make us as miserable as we fear it will. There's also been studies of those who win the lottery, you know, to win the mega millions, mega bucks, and those things. And I think we've all had the fantasy that, gosh, if I won the, if I won the lottery. Life would be great for a week or two. And that's what they find, that those who win the lottery, and while they can pay off their bills and buy a new car and a house and get their kids to college and whatnot, whatnot, a year after they win the lottery, their baseline happiness is no different than the day before they won the lottery. There's no significant, appreciable change in one's happiness from winning the lottery. And they also studied those who suffered catastrophic illness or accident, where there was really dramatic change in life. Same for them. After stabilizing in their new condition, a year after or so, a year or so after their accident or disease or whatever, Baseline happiness, no different than before. We can only conclude from all of these studies that 
we don't know what's going to make us happy. And our happiness isn't dependent on external conditions. It is totally dependent on our mind's relationship to it. So contrary to our conditioning, what we believe, what we assume about ourselves and life. So we have the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha that's to be investigated and understood. We have the second noble truth, craving which is to be abandoned. You know, if we had the Buddha's famous two noble truths, there's dukkha caused by craving, good luck. What would you do? I mean, what an endless cycle of hell that would be. Okay, luckily he was only half done, came up with the third noble truth, and he said, you know what, there is an end to craving, and the end of that craving is the end of dukkha. Now often when we hear of the third noble truth, we hear teachings of enlightenment, liberation, nibbana, things that feel and appear really remote, like maybe for people at the time of the Buddha, or monks and nuns living in caves in some far-off foreign country, or maybe for people that do three-month retreat ten years in a row or something. It's just not for us. So I want to speak about the Third Noble Truth in terms of our experiences here today. Okay. One way that we notice the end of craving and the end of dukkha in our practice here is by being mindful. I'm going to guess that all of you have had the experience today of drifting off into wandering mind. Right? Totally oblivious. You don't know you're drifting. Your mind is off in some la-la land. You don't know it. You don't know you're thinking. You don't know you're in you don't know your spirit rock, you don't know you're on retreat, you don't know you're sitting, you don't know anything. You know, but you're really having, you're really entertained. <laughs> and then you come to, you know, mindfulness strikes, you know, and you find yourself hanging on to some, you know, plan that you didn't even know you had, some memory that you didn't know, you know, some trying to make something, designing, you know, your renovation to your house or and as soon as you notice it, <laughs> you can just say, well, I don't, let that go. And in that letting go, there is the end of craving and a momentary relief from the tension, the stress, and the dukkha of holding on to that. Well, when I first started a practice, it was a few years after I got out of the university where I studied engineering. And I went to engineering school back in the days when we didn't have handheld calculators. We had slide rules and a lot of longhand math in the head, where it was just a lot of math. And after, you know, many advanced math courses at the university level, well, I was pretty good at doing math in the head. So, went to my first retreat. Mine wanders off into some habit. And my habit is mathematical computations. <laughs> I would be off in some la-la land, come to, and I'd be multiplying out four and five digit numbers in my mind going... 
And I'd become aware of that and I'd say, do I have to be doing this right now? <laughs> and luckily I didn't. And I could let it go. Just think, if I never started practicing awareness, I'd still be doing that. Our mind does, in its discretionary time, what we've told it to do in our intentional time. We train our minds to do what we do. And it does it, even when it doesn't need to. So we discover this in our practice. And to the extent that we discover it through just being mindful, we can intentionally just let go. Let go of holding on. And in that we get a momentary relief. A dukkha-free zone. A moment of dukkha-free zone. We say, hmm? There's another way that we experience the end of craving, the end of dukkha in practice here, is when we discover our obsessing habits of mind. You know, what's yours? Loneliness, anxiety, fear, self-judgment, and it just goes on and on and on and on. It's just like, it just wears you down. Every time you're not paying attention, boom, it goes right there. It starts obsessing again. But as we develop the momentum of mindfulness, we see it more quickly. We see it more frequently. We, we, just, we just see the, the mind heading off into its dark hole. Boop, 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 and, you know, and in time, the momentum of mindfulness is so quick or it's so continuous that it prevents the mind from engaging in its obsessive habits. Now think about the obsessive habit of mind that you noticed today that was driving you crazy. Imagine it's not there. Imagine your mindfulness is such that it never gets a foothold in the mind. You don't get caught in your depression. You don't get caught in your anxiety. You don't get caught in your loneliness. You don't get caught in your fear. You don't get caught in your self-judgment. You see it, but it just stops. It stops. It stops. It stops. It stops. It stops. It doesn't start. It doesn't start. It's gone. Hey, relief. The mind is not holding on to its habit. It's not craving. It's not grasping. It's not holding. That's the end of that dukkha for a sustained period of time. And we see that as we develop the momentum of our awareness. There's a third way that we see the, well, temporary end of, of, of dukkha. For most of us, it's a little later in the retreat, but when the, what are called the seven factors of awakening are mature. These are the three energizing factors of energy, investigation, and joy are balanced with the three tranquilizing factors of calm, concentration, and equanimity. The three energizing balanced with the three tranquilizing by the activity and the momentum of mindfulness itself. When these seven factors of mind are, are developed in our practice, we come to a place of balance, strong equanimity, where the mind just doesn't fall into reaction to anything. Pleasant experiences arise, we don't react. Unpleasant experiences arise, we don't react. 
We don't get caught in push and pull and getting jerked around by what's arising in each moment. We actually can rest in a, a very calm, equanimous, balanced relationship to well, everything. Where's the dukkha in that? You're not reacting. You're not getting caught in the reactivity of attaching and craving pleasant or averting, avert, averting from or being judgmental of the unpleasant. We see it as it is, it's okay. In that balance of mind, in that equanimous mind, the strength of the equanimity provides an inoculation, a kind of insulation from dukkha. There's another way that we experience the momentary and endure, more enduring relief from dukkha when the mind is very balanced, strong equanimity, where we're just able to be with things as they appear. We begin to develop or we begin to see the unfolding of insight or vipassana. Vipassana is insight knowledge of three kinds. And the first knowledge that we gain through clear seeing the way things are is we see that everything that arises passes away. Everything that comes into being lasts for a moment and then dissolves. Every moment of thought, sensation, sound, imagination, judgment, it arises due to causes and conditions and it ends. And we see that. And we just see everything is just fleeting appearance in the mind. It appears, it's gone. It appears, it's gone. It appears, it's gone. It's just going away, going away, going away. When the mind understands this about everything that appears, everything that arises, it's just fleeting, it doesn't last. The mind doesn't have to let go because the mind knows enough not to even reach for that which will not be there in the next moment. If you know something's not going to be there, why would you reach? The mind doesn't. The mind is willing to just see things arise, disappear, don't reach, don't hold, don't crave, no dukkha. Through understanding the fleeting nature of all experience. The mind just rests in clear observation without craving, without attachment, without aversion, without identification, seeing things as they are understanding them to be impermanent. The second knowledge that insight reveals is the knowledge of dukkha. Now you remember what I said about dukkha? It's pain, it's insecurity, or it's oppressive. Those are the three general characteristics. When the knowledge of dukkha arises through insight, what we understand of each moment's experience is that it, is, it has the characteristic of dukkha. This moment is either painful, why would we reach for that? Or it's unstable, not there the next moment, why would we reach for that? Or it's oppressive and burdensome, why would we reach for that? The mind knows this, 
The mind knows this characteristic of everything that arises. Every experience that arises, physical, mental, emotional, internal, external, gross, subtle, familiar, novel, anything, is seen to have the characteristic of dukkha. And so the mind doesn't reach. And if it doesn't reach, it doesn't hold, and if it doesn't hold, there's no dukkha. The mind rests in this understanding of the dukkha characteristic of all phenomena. The third insight is what's called the anatta characteristic. What it means experientially is that we see that that which arises in this moment is conditioned. It's brought into being by other conditions, which are in themselves brought into being by other conditions. But when you look carefully at this appearance, there's nothing substantial there. It's like a rainbow. It's the understanding of a rainbow, anatta characteristic. You look in the sky and you see this beautiful appearance. And you just love to be able to take it home and put it in your living room over the mantel. Or, you know, keep it in your kitchen on the dining in the kitchen table. Or over the stove as a nice wall decoration. But you can't. There's nothing there. It is an appearance due to, well, causes and conditions. Moisture in the air, angle of the sunlight, the angle of viewing. You look at it and you see a rainbow. But in fact, there's nothing there. There isn't any one of us in this room that would go chasing a rainbow, trying to collect it, put it in a box to send to me in Maui. Right? When you understand the anatta characteristic of phenomena, everything that appears in the mind is just like a rainbow. It's an appearance, colorful though it may be, due to causes and conditions that are in themselves insubstantial. There's nothing inherently there. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy the appearance. We can. But we can't grasp it. And when we understand that, we don't reach, we don't grasp. And if you don't grasp, there's no dukkha. Through understanding the dukkha characteristic of all phenomena, dukkha, or understanding the anatta characteristic of all phenomena, dukkha comes to an end. This is the value of developing the continuity of awareness for the development of the unfolding of insight, which we're doing here. But that's not the end. There's one more way of experiencing the end of dukkha. And this is what the Buddha is pointing to most uh, significantly or, or most profoundly in the Third Noble Truth. And that is when the mind is very balanced, very equanimous, not reacting to anything, and deeply understands the three characteristics that I just spoke about. Fleeting, dukkha, uh, and insubstantial. The mind is not grasping or holding on to anything. And when it doesn't hold on to any conditioned thing, we say it can fall into the unconditioned. It can leap to the unconditioned. It can reach or realize the unconditioned, which is Nibbana. Nibbana is a reality. It can be realized. 
But the nature of Nibbana is that it has no characteristics that we can describe. It has no size, no shape, no color. It isn't located anywhere. But it is a reality that can be known. Its characteristic is peace. And this is what the Buddha is pointing to in the Third Noble Truth as the end of dukkha. The peace of the unconditioned. The peace of Nibbana. And the Buddha said of this understanding that Nibbana is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful. It is sublime. And it is intelligible to the wise. Nibbana is not only for monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for people in remote forests, caves, or mountains. It is for each one of us here in the West, householders, to realize for ourselves. It is available if we practice. If we develop awareness, equanimity, and insight, Nibbana is not far behind. This is the end of suffering that the Buddha is pointing to. The fourth noble truth is the path to realize this end of suffering. And the path, you know, the noble eightfold path, is really three trainings. There's the training in sila or purification of speech in behavior through right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood. And when we purify our speech and behavior, or the intention to speak and the intention to act, when we purify them of any defilement, any hindrance, We get to enjoy the happiness of living in harmony. Harmony within and harmony without. But even though we may live in harmony and in alignment with our inner understanding of what's right and wrong, and speak and act carefully in relationship to others, our mind can still be pretty tormented with wanting to say and wanting to do, which we're exercising restraint on. And so the Buddha offered a second training, stronger, and more subtle, which is the training in samadhi or concentration, which is the purification of the mind. Not just the purification of our speech and behavior, but the purification of the mind so that for sustained periods of time there is no defilement, no hindrance in the mind. And we do that through the development of mindfulness. Just what we're doing here. Practicing mindfulness as continuously as we can to temporarily, but in a sustained way, Put aside the defilements. When we do the obsessive defilements or the obsessive hindrances, do not have free reign in the mind. We get to enjoy the happiness of a mind secluded from the torments. And that's not insignificant. Still, conditions change. And there's a third training, more powerful, more subtle, that's required, and that is the training in the development of wisdom or panya, right view and right thought in the Eightfold Path. 
And this is through the practice of Vipassana. Through coming to understand the three characteristics, as I just spoke about, we purify our understanding. We're not just purifying our speech and behavior. We're not just purifying our mind. We're purifying our understanding with the practice of insight, Vipassana. And it is this understanding, the change and the purification of our understanding, which frees the mind from dukkha. This is the path. This is what we've been doing. We've been living by the precepts. We've been developing mindfulness. We've been seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena. We have all day long been practicing and perfecting the realization of the Four Noble Truths. What more can you do? That's it. That's all you can do in any one moment throughout the day. We have spent our time wisely today practicing and realizing to some degree each of these Four Noble Truths. Fulfilling the path, developing the path that will result in, in time, the end of dukkha. And why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? Because, he said, it is beneficial. It is fundamental to the holy life. It leads to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace. It leads to direct knowledge. It leads to enlightenment. It leads to nibbana. So let's sit for a moment and let the words settle down. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's a half hour for uh, walking or mindful movement, and then we'll come back for the last sitting of the evening. <laughs>